stay in your seat. courtesy they deserve, then you don't deserve to be called adults, but children, because that's what children are, and you'll be treated like children. So let's all listen up, huh? People! People! Who cares about this stupid election?
Also, it was so strange to see a man who had seen the entire world paint himself alone in a bathroom, in the bathtub, naked, or shaving. Jerry. I mean, you're, you would, you're an art critic. What, what, what right. would one be thinking to, to be painting oneself? Is this like a rebirth? Is this symbolic of a new spring? Here I go, bringing out my old English major in me. I mean, but seriously, what do you think? I'm so did an empath, he made a step for me in front of him. And so he was after me and he said, I'd love to be a priest, will you send me away to a college? And so they, he said, they said, yeah, we let you go away. And so he went away, he went away to the college, even though that smart takes seven years to be a priest. And so he went away to college and this night he was a priest and then he was picked for a bishop. And so he never when he was going to sleep this night and he thought he heard his kids saying, come back, Patrick, come back, Patrick, and tell us about God. And so, and the other youngsters say, well, he's left me there for six years. He's did meanness on me. He's let me starve and he's took me away from my mother. I wouldn't go back there for anything. So poor Patrick didn't say that. And he said, I, I won't keep room for them. I'll go back to them and I'll save that soul. And this day, yeah, the Pope could he go and the Pope met him. Glass, welcome to Jackass. It's episode 42 of the Humor in the Abject podcast. I'm your host, Sean J. Patrick Carney. I want to do a couple of items of business real quick here. Uh, Monday, February 12th, that's tomorrow uh, or today, if you're listening on Monday morning, I'm leading a panel at the Noya House related to my recent Art in America feature piece called The Practical Precariat that looks at the community-based strategies employed by artists uh, like Jamie Warren, Brontez Purnell, Jillian Mayer, and comedian Chris Gethard. At the panel, I'm excited to have Chris Udameze from House of Ladosha and Raga NYC, Patton Hindle from Kickstarter and Yours, Mine, and Ours Gallery, and Jamie Warren. It starts at 6.15 p.m., and it's going to run until about 7.30 p.m. at Neue House Madison Square, 110 East 25th Street 
It is totally free to attend, but they are asking that you RSVP to programming ms at noyahouse.com. That's programming M as in Mark, S as in Samuel at N-E-U-E house.com. Come on out if you can. Last week I was plugging the group show like an iron glove cast in velvet that Jonah Porter is curating at Interstate Projects. It's going to open up this Friday, February 17th. That features Thomas J. Gamble, who does the Infinite Hesh comics for Human the Abject, plus Jen Shear, Qdellis Brazelton, and Santiago Leba. You should 100% be going to that event, and I want to point out that you would also have time to drop by Postmaster's Gallery on the earlier side to see Jillian Mayer and her new show there, whom I wrote about in The Practical Precariat. Um, wonderful person, wonderful person, Miami-based, great filmmaker, co-founder of the Borscht Corps, can't say enough good things about Jillian Mayer. If you don't know her work, I would suggest beginning with the YouTube video, I Am Your Grandma, followed by Mega Mega Upload, and then get into her physical work. Oh, and my boy, Michael Welsh, got a great write-up about his show at Interstate Projects from the Brooklyn Rail that you've got to check out. And I want to say a big thanks to Mike for leading a tie-dye workshop with my Dia Beacon teens the other weekend. Can't remember if I mentioned that yet, but uh, the pics are adorable, and all the kids made these fantastic, incredible t-shirts. Now, as always, I want to also shout out all of the humor and the abject supporters on Drip. You are the absolute best, and we'll have a brand new Darcy, Sean, and Ezekway podcast. That's the DSA podcast coming your way shortly. We've just scheduled that today. Uh, not scheduled for today. We today scheduled it for a date very soon. For anybody who's been meaning to subscribe but hasn't, if you sign up between this episode dropping and next Sunday, February 18th, You'll be rewarded with a nice little original drawing from me that I'll drop in the mail for you. Uh, let's get to chewing here. Longtime listeners will likely have noticed that somebody was missing from this week's introduction. Well, there's a reason for that, and it is the opposite of dramatic. Over the last 40-odd episodes, I have had the privilege of interviewing some of my favorite artists, comedians, writers, musicians, and filmmakers... And every week, more people than I'd ever expect to do so tune in for these conversations. Um, I want to say thank you to all of you for following along on this journey. But, you know, something else happens every week, too. I have the opportunity to work with the greatest podcast studio manager in the history of the medium. You rely on her soothing cadence and insightful social commentary to kick off every episode, don't you? And it's been far too long, in my opinion since I've set aside some time to recognize the invaluable contributions that she makes to this podcast. So this week, we are shifting gears a little bit and pulling back the curtain. It's time to meet the wizard. I'm honored as hell to have as my special guest today, one of my favorite people and yours. Staffenly, welcome to Humor in the Abject. How's your week? It's going very well, Sean. Thanks for asking. How about yours? It's going well, and thank you for asking. To be frank, I felt obligated. How do you mean? Well, whenever one of the guests asks you how your week is going back, you always make a big deal out of it and say that not very many people think to do this. It makes it painfully obvious that you'd like for everyone to do this. So I did. All right. <laughs> That's unnecessary. Here's the thing, Sean. We've been in the same room as one another for the last hour setting up all of the recording equipment, and you already asked me how my week was as soon as I'd arrived. 
I actually asked you the same. I don't really see the point in belaboring how either of our weeks is going at this point, or how that would prove very interesting to the listeners. Okay, we're off to a great start here, right? No, I'm just giving you shit. Uh, I'm curious, where did you grow up? I grew up in Janesville, Wisconsin. No shit? Wow, uh, Claire and I were there for her family reunion a couple of summers back. It's a really weird town, totally strange, very Wisconsin, kind of odd, and if I'm not mistaken, that's where Paul... Paul Ryan lives, right? I feel like you clearly already know that Paul Ryan lives there. Yeah, he does, doesn't yeah, he? That is so he wild. Does. You've literally tweeted about how Paul Ryan lives there multiple times. Yeah, yeah. W what was that like? Growing up there? Or seeing you tweet that Paul Ryan lives there? <laughs> oh, man. Did you ever meet him? No. Now, one time I did a show in Milwaukee with this guy. He was, maybe he still is. Scott Reeder, studio manager. He lives in Detroit now and has this gallery called Bahamas Biennale. His name's Sean Thomas Blot, and he just hit me up out of nowhere over Facebook in 2012, saying that he wanted me to do a solo show in Milwaukee, which was where Bahamas Biennale was located at the time. I'm 100% positive that you've mentioned this in a previous episode, or rather, on multiple previous episodes. You definitely did. The whole show was about the city of Milwaukee. Yeah, and here's the thing. I've never... You've never even been to Milwaukee. You still haven't. You mailed the work there and sent instructions for how it should be installed. All the work that you made was specifically about the city of Milwaukee. And despite having never been there, you felt like you could understand the city and make jokes about it because you are from the Midwest. Yeah, exactly. I just feel like there's something uh, about being from the Midwest. Something that you know when you see it, but you haven't figured out yet how to describe. Yes, yes, yes. Maybe you could try sitting down for a few minutes with a pen and paper and making some notes for yourself that outline what constitutes a Midwest sense of humor. Instead of continuously asking every one of your guests who is from the Midwest if they might do the labor of defining it for you. Or, maybe guests, like me, from the Midwest, don't actually want to do that. Wait, you're from the Midwest? Holy shit, where? I just told you. Wisconsin. I'm from this little town called Traverse City. It's like right... It's where your pinky finger is when you hold up your hand to make a mitten, which ironically nobody listening can see this time or the 11 previous times that you've done it. It's on Lake Michigan. Well, it's it's on Grand Traverse Bay, which is an inlet of Lake Michigan. Have you ever been to Traverse City, Staffing? No. I mean, as a city, it's fine. It's changed a lot since I was in high school, but not really, not into like a capital A art city or anything like that. Um, it was weird growing up there. I mean, I didn't have much access to contemporary art uh, when I was in high school. I mean, in fact, I... You failed AP Studio Art. I did. Oh my god. Did you take AP Studio Art in Wisconsin? No. Uh, w wait, which city are you from? Janesville. That's crazy. I've been there before for a family reunion. Well, it was Claire's actually. So when you were a kid there, um, were your parents podcast studio managers too? No, my parents were not podcast studio managers, nor did they work in the arts. My mother was a goblin and my father was a ghoul. We spent the better part of my childhood foraging mice and spring water from the surrounding fields and tributaries. And I'm having trouble understanding the basis of your question, as I cannot fathom how you would think that when I was a child my parents could have been podcast studio managers. How do you mean? 
Sean, what year do you think podcasts started? Well, I'm 35. I was born in 1982. Uh, actually, I recently quit smoking. Um, a little while ago, Anna Fabrego was a guest on the podcast, and I can't remember if it was during the episode or afterwards, but she told me that she thinks of me as a kind of comedy administrator. And I, I mean, I'll be honest, I've become kind of fond of that idea. Podcasts probably only started like 13 or 14 years ago, Sean. Your question implies depending on what you consider the age of a quote kid unquote, that not only am I approximately just 20 years old now, but that my parents were prototech freaks who were somehow both employed lucratively by the blossoming Wisconsin podcast industry. I see. So what did they do for a living? And you know, Did it have an influence on you? They were literally monstrous creatures. And they were my parents. Of course they influenced me. Have you ever found that someone responds in any different fashion to that question? Now, am I correct that you just returned from a trip a little while ago? Am I correct that you are actually referring to what just happened to me as a trip? Mm-hmm. Well, as longtime listeners of the podcast know, Sean, I was recently taken captive in the desert by an army of dick-worshipping scorpions. Dick-worshipping? Yes predatory or acnids who kneel before a bone or deity. Alright, I'm asking this out of genuine curiosity and it's because it's way outside of my own experience here. How exactly does something like that come about? I mean, how do you get involved with a colony of dick-worshipping scorpions? There I was, staring across an expansive desert. A wasteland of ruinous sand. As I fantasized about a drink of water, I began to grow weary. The sun was high and I was nearly collapsing into the sand. Then, I heard a series of melodic calls in the distance. It was a beautiful sound. Something that I'd heard before. Something from my years as a teenage socialist in the Midwest. Did you grow up in the Midwest? Get fucked. So what was the sound? It was the melody to Gordon Lightfoot's absolute banger The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. No fucking way, I love that song. I'm. I am obsessed with the Edmund no, Fitzgerald. No, you're not. You read about it while drunk online one night and then tweeted about it for like 40 minutes and forgot about it by the next morning. That, that's a fair critique. Anyways, their song beckoned to me, and suddenly I was filled with all of the energy I'd lost and then some. I ran towards the sounds, ignoring the oppressive blazing sun burning my skin that demanded to know what my bones looked like. As I finally saw them, I came to a sudden halt. It was like nothing that I'd ever seen. Could you describe that, maybe unpack it a little bit? I mean, what was that like for you? And was comedy always part of, <clears throat> excuse me, was comedy always part of what you were interested in or did that come later? Nearly 300 scorpions were gathered in a crude circle, wailing harmonies and gnashing at a six-foot saw waro cactus painted photorealistically like a quivering but regal boner. They were enraptured. The saw waro had rays of light emanating from it, and the light reflected in prisms off of the black exoskeletons of the scorpions. I was nearly blinded. Not by the brightness of these rainbow refractions, but by the sheer, awesome beauty of everything. That sounds wild and elegant. It was, you fucking coward. Without even realizing what I was doing, 
I dug my hands and feet into the scorching sand and began to buck my body wildly, joining them in song. I dived in and out of them, like a prenatural circus performer. We reverberated to a single bass line, an eternal rhythm that no human before me had ever experienced. Dozens of scorpions began to climb on me, like so many zebra mussels on the hull of the Edmund Fitzgerald. Crawling in my skin. Those wounds, they would not heal. They guided me closer and closer to the phallic cactus, the factus, if you will. Its spines began to pierce my scalding, red flesh. But I felt no pain. The scorpions were stinging me relentlessly, forcing a stream of toxins into my veins that must have contained some kind of numbing agent. When my body was pressed hard against the cactus, I suddenly blacked out. Was it a performance blackout? I've experienced that. And I've had a lot of comedians and performance artists tell me that when they're on the stage, even if they're completely sober, right afterwards, they can't recall exactly what happened. I imagine that I blacked out from being stung by a mob of scorpions and slammed against a six-foot cactus while already experiencing severe dehydration in the desert sun. Okay, in that moment, how do you maintain control? Like, did you care if all the scorpions attacking you were into your stuff, or were you more concerned with just reaching a couple of the scorpions who were, like, on the level? The only concern that I had in that moment was how to access some kind of medical attention. Yeah, yeah, I think about access a lot, like with my own work. I want to make things that have, I guess, multiple tiers of access so that there can be a whole spectrum of viewership. Yeah, um... I want a 13-year-old skateboarder to get a kick out of it, but also for somebody who has like a PhD in art history to feel like there are little bits in there for them, you know, like little Easter eggs. Can you hear yourself? Yeah, why? Are your headphones not working? Here, um, let me see yours quickly so I can check the levels. I can always cut this out later. Honestly, it's no problem. My headphones are working completely fine. Perhaps what I said was over your head. Overhead. There's a bombshell. God, I think about that a lot. I mean, how are we supposed to manage the overhead, you know, affording the overhead of spaces while also presenting non-commercial work? The internet is a great place to look at and share art, but I mean, maybe I'm a little old school in this, but I really enjoy getting to see something in person. It's so difficult too, especially in New York, to maintain an artist-run gallery. Um, I mean, I used to be involved in one a couple of years ago. I know. Essex Flowers. Jesus Christ. So these scorpions had a space. Where was it? They reside in the reactionary desert, a parallel reality akin to the Sonoran Desert. Really? That's awesome. I used to live in... Arizona. You lived in Arizona. You went to Arizona State. Your girlfriend, Claire, is originally from Arizona. You visit her family there every year. In fact, you just did a road trip there. Yeah, we did. It was really awesome. Okay. Um, well, so what was, what was their space like? I, I've been to a lot of alternative spaces around Arizona, especially in Tucson, but I've never had the opportunity while visiting to check out anything that was like a scorpion lair. I awoke after three days time, gasping for air with my lips cracked severely. It was obvious to me, because of the cooler air, that it was night time and that I was now underground. My eyes adjusted to the low light in the room, 
and I could make out the glowing eyes of several dick-worshipping scorpions on the margins of the space. They were watching me. Not with animosity, necessarily, but with a raw, fecund curiosity. I struggled to stand, only then realizing that I was shackled to the dirt floor. Across the room, a creaky wooden door opened and what I surmised was their leader stepped into the room. He was larger than the other scorpions, perhaps 200 plus centimeters in height. Sorry, what is that in inches? I mostly only know the American system, but several years ago I did an artist residency in Canada and they would use... It's like six foot eight, Sean. He approached me, slowly at first and then with more speed. I will admit that I cowered a bit at the sheer spectacle of him. He bent down close to me and whispered a query. Do you worship Dick? I shuddered visibly, as a chill went down my spine. Quite the sensation when one's back is as sunburned as mine was at that moment. Through my quivering lips, I managed to meekly reply that, yes, I did, in fact, worship Dick. He seemed satisfied and produced a bowl of drinking water from behind his armor-like back. I bent down insanely and slurped at the water. Nothing in my life had ever tasted as rejuvenating as that liquid. Wow, so the scorpions have created kind of like a DIY space centered around their own interests. That's it's actually inspiring. I know it's a cheesy word, but that's inspiring. Now, would you call your experience there a residency? And do you have any thoughts for listeners who might be considering applying for a residency soon about what they should be looking for? I'm sorry. What? The scorpion compound in the reactionary desert. Were you like an artist in residence or was it more casual? I mean, it's just like thoughts in general. I mean, you don't have to show your cards if you don't want to about pursuing residency as an artist. Like, what are your thoughts? It wasn't a residency. They had taken me prisoner. God, no, I I know that it can feel like that. Uh, when I was at Banff, it was like two months long in the Canadian Rockies. I seriously got cabin fever multiple times, I think. There was a town that we could go down into, but for the most part... Sean, what I experienced at the Scorpion compound was not something that I actively sought out, and certainly not something that I applied for. I was lost in the desert, seduced by a community of wild scorpions, drugged, and then kidnapped into a parallel reality. Now, what happened later... That's yeah, an interesting term, community, isn't it? While I can understand how some people think it's a bankrupt one, I think when it really plays out in reality, it can be an amazing thing, you know? Would you agree? The many scorpions found in the pet trade, most of them are very docile by nature, easy to handle, not quick or apt to think. And there's exceptions to the rules, like from the southwest part of the United States, Texas, Arizona, Nevada, New Mexico, we find the desert hairy scorpion. Pretty simple, comes from the desert, it's got a lot of hairs all over its body. Scorpions have this guy is the hairiest of them all over his back. But if you can see the way he's arching his back right now and has his stinger just waiting, it's almost like he's got his fist up waiting to punch. He is aggressive. Oh, hi. I was just um, praying to the phallus god. So, in case you're wondering what, where this originated from, It originated from praying to the phallus. 
Haven't you ever wondered? Well, I have. I think about everything. <laughs> of course, I do have a one-track mind. But anyway, I digress. Uh, worshiping the phallus. Five inspiring religions that worship the penis. One. 16th century Buddhist monks use a wood, used a wooden dildo called the Flaming Thunderbolt. Okay, now we'll come back to the music. Are you ready? Yeah, okay. So this um, leader of the Scorpions, what was his deal? I don't think I know his work. I learned a long time ago uh, not to claim that I know who somebody is when I actually don't. <laughs> his name was Mephilo Botanjamar, first of his name, of House Tanjamar, son of Dugbus. Known in the reactionary desert by many names including Canadian Democracy, Whiptug the Cream Assumer, Evangelo Dork Emporium, The Potato Whistler, Chauncey Botanical, and The Jogging. Would you say that he had an influence on your approach to comedy? And, and why is it important for you to situate what you do within the realm of comedy as opposed to, say, like, performance art? I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to be reductive here with what you do or say that you can't participate in that, but comedy has a certain specificity to it uh, in its history, and your work has always seemed to me to be... I guess a little more oblique. I don't do comedy or performance art. I manage this podcast. And yes, the one they call Chauncey Botanical had a resonating effect on me. After giving me a bowl of water, he blessed me three times. The other scorpions bowed in relentless love and snapped their pinchers together as if it were an evening of white tumbler slam poetry in the student union of Wesleyan. He then molded me physically, with his own pinchers. I became illustrious, outrageous even. My bones were one with the stars and everything that has come before us and is yet to come. The fatigue in my body vanished instantly. He unshackled me. A bond of trust was born in that moment that can never be taken from me. Muffalo Botanjamar spoke into my soul through my eyes. No words were exchanged. Can I ask what he said to you? I mean, you honestly don't have to say, but I hear from a lot of art students who listen to this podcast, and I think they'd find it really valuable to understand how mentorships work outside of the academy. He gave me a new name, Dungeon Wing. He foretold that I would bear an offspring and name him Raffle. He would grow, slowly, but firmly into a great revenant that would infiltrate and ultimately dismantle the Democratic Socialists of America. Oh, the DSA? Nice. Um, for anybody out there thinking about subscribing to the Human the Abject Drip Profile, it is the only place where you can hear the DSA podcast, which of course stands for Darcy, Sean, and Ezekwe. Fuck you. Hey, wait, you said earlier that you were a young socialist in the Midwest. Wouldn't the dismantling of the DSA then bother you? I feel like it's just getting its footing in the national spotlight. Irrelevant. Raffle, in his 14th year, will bear a son himself through immaculate conception. He will have no lover of whom to speak. His spawn will gestate inside of him, growing thick in leg and limb. Upon birth, Raffle will name the child My Sickle, but his friends will call him Mike for short. 
With eight appendages, Mike will stalk the landscape communicating the gospel of the reactionary desert and all will follow him onto the most scorched sandscapes of the parallel earth. On the twelfth day of their journey, he will turn on them and devour each, leaving their cartilage-riddled bones upon the sand for buzzards to picket in a solemn, but sensual, dance macabre. Do you think that Raffle or Mycicle will ever consider buying a home? I mean, the baby boomers destroy the entire economy from the housing market to the cost of education. And sometimes I wonder what our generation is going to leave behind. Not that we have much to leave to begin with. Um, I mean, I'm sort of a millennial, but maybe not. I honestly can never tell. I'm like on the cusp of millennials and Gen X. I think it's like 1980 is the cutoff or I'm, I'm 82. I'm not exactly sure. Under Raffles' reign, the concept of home will be unspeakable. With the Democratic Socialists of America obliterated, Twitter will fall shortly thereafter, throwing the world into a chaotic descent the likes of which have only been described once in Stephen King's flawless epic The Stand. You will meet your own personal Randall Flagg, Sean. And he will come to possess you in mind and body until your idea of reality has bent itself inside out. There will be no shelter from atmospheric rain or totalitarian rain, and when you awake in a dimly lit subterranean room surrounded by scorpions, you will know actual pain. Mm, yeah, how do you mean? They will find your dick unworthy of worship. Pitiful even. And you will be cast out into the reactionary desert naked and afraid. The sun will ravage your genitals and on the seventh day you will collapse below a cactus, delirious and filled with hallucinations. I did a pretty decent amount of psychedelics in college, but I feel like I'm too old to do them now. Um, did you know that I, I actually, I was trained as a printmaker. After a night of unending pain, you will awake as Raffle and Mike step from behind the cactus and rip your arms out through your butthole. In that moment, for the first time in your basic life, you will be free. Dead. But free. After Mufflo gave you the name Dungeon Wing, did you guys hang out much? I don't want to spend time talking about some man who's a friend of yours when you are my guest. I mean, it just feels misogynistic to do that. Um, I mean, when Chloe Wise was on episode 27, I wanted to ask her about Eric Wareheim, and I did. And then after, I was like, man, Chloe is... Definitely like besties with Eric, but honestly, she probably is tired of being asked about him. Your profound neuroses about whether or not you sound woke on your podcast is insufferable. Yeah, it's a fair critique. After bestowing upon me the name of Dungeon Wing, he took me above ground. The desert night sky was humbling, as if someone had taken a paintbrush, dipped it into white paint, and smacked it upon a deep black canvas. A party had begun, in my honor. I glanced at my arms and legs and noticed that the puncture wounds from the scorpions and the cactus had disappeared. Muffalo smiled at me knowingly. The soundtrack to Ravenous pumped punishingly from multiple orange brand half-stacks, and the scorpions began to engage in an erotic and sophisticated dance. I did not know the choreography, and yet, it came to me. I joined in with them and we danced deep into the night. I wept multiple times. As each hour passed, I grew another limb. And by sunrise, I had four arms, four legs, 
one butthole. No exoskeleton formed, but Mafilo informed this was because it was not yet my time. In terms of the new arms and legs that you developed, did you feel like there was any kind of hierarchy between them or were each equally important to you? A pointless junior varsity question. Was it at all at that point like you felt a sense of agency? Like, were you able to leave? And I think it's important for people to feel like they have a sense of mobility and like they can take up or leave space as they see fit. And then a whole generation of artists who haven't previously seen themselves represented or reflected in these pockets of culture think to themselves, hey, if they can do it, so can I. And I think that's valuable, right? I had no desire to leave. The reactionary desert, although a space that initially kidnapped me, was the most beautiful place that I have ever been. I was ready to assimilate, to worship Dick with the scorpions. But Mathilo sat me down and told me that I had to leave. I would return, he said, when I became with child. When Raffle begins his journey in my womb, I will feel a calling back to the desert, an animalistic yearning like the penguin who can travel 100,000 miles with no eyes and find the same egg he licked a generation ago. I was offered no map, only a deep embrace by Mithilo. The other scorpions gathered around and chanted in tongues. The sun crested over the surrounding mountains and its light grew brilliant and blinding. My body began to shake violently and I became disoriented. The earth below me rumbled and an enormous penis cactus entered my vision, screaming a chain of numbers to me. A sudden flash and a bang assaulted me and everything went black. Huh. Would you describe that as kind of like a performance blackout? I've experienced that myself almost every single time that I've gone on stage, whether I'm inebriated or completely sober. Sure. If that makes you happy. Yeah, what happened then? In all honesty, I experienced a great deal of lost time. Something like five days passed, and I remember virtually nothing. When I came to, it was pouring rain and I was naked near the side of a highway. Having no idea where I was, I was lucky to have spied a phone booth nearby. I made a collect call to my family, gasping nearly inaudibly, and somehow they were able to recognize my voice and determine where I was located. They arrived, along with several of my friends from my logging crew. But a man was with them, someone obsessed with the paranormal who shoved a microphone in my face demanding to know what I had seen. What they looked like. I can barely recall anything, except my brother and friends screaming at him. The next thing I knew, I was in an ambulance being taken to a hospital near the town of Snowflake, Arizona. Holy shit. <laughs> That's amazing. Um... When did you, when did you first come to New York? 